So before we start, I just wanted to talk a minute about family. Teresa mentioned family, family, family today. We are a family. And we have a philosophy that it's the family's responsibility, the spiritual well-being of their children is the parents' responsibility. And um, as the church, we are here to support the family as they disciple and grow their children. So we have a big role to play, but it's really the parents' responsibility. That being said, we're going to start to dedicate babies here pretty soon, and you're going to be asked as the church family to make a commitment to those families and those babies. And you'll see that we have uh, the youth kids are in here during our worship time. That uh, Eric and Dana have been teaching them about worship, ex- exposing them to all different ways biblically that people worshiped God. And they're in here practicing their worship and doing their worship. And you'll see that John and Lori have the kids from the second through fifth grade ministry in here while we worship. And the idea is that our children should learn to worship from us. So it's incumbent upon you as parents of all of our children that you would be a worshipful example. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about expression of worship. You might be a dancer, you might be a sitter, but, but if there's not worship coming out of you, we need to work on that because those kids should grow in their ability to worship God from watching us. Um, sometimes I guess it'll be the other way around, but, but it shouldn't always be the other way around. So think about that during worship time. 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when your children have children, did we contribute to their ability to be godly parents that could teach their children to worship? We don't want to sit and say, wow, you know, I wish my son could worship God properly. Part of that comes from watching us, okay? All right. So tonight we're going to continue to talk about discipleship. We're kicking off Church in the Home, which is our small group discipleship ministry. If you're from the Freedom Center, you would know that as cell group and then e-group. Before we start, I want to do a little exercise. Not exercise, but an exercise. So everybody raise your hand. Hold up your hand until I mention something that you would feel challenged or unable to accomplish, okay? So first is baptize people. Okay? Teach people to obey everything Jesus commanded. You're actually getting further than I thought you would. Heal the sick. Cleanse lepers. I'm not sure if I'm lying to you right now. (laughs) Cast out demons. Raise the dead. Okay, well, the exercise was to point out that discipleship is, is something that we all need, and it's a process that we go through. It doesn't, it doesn't start and stop tonight. It doesn't start and stop because you went to small group meetings. It's, a, it's an ongoing process of growing in the Lord. But I just wanted to, to get us to a place where we recognize that there's things that disciples do that we would all feel challenged if we were confronted with the need to do them. So I have three objectives for tonight. I have three objectives for tonight. First is to um, get us to a place where we have a biblical context of discipleship. The second is to get us to a point that we would agree that we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And the third is through that process to get you to be committed to your own 
discipleship, being discipled and discipling through uh, the discipleship ministry that you're going to hear about a little bit tonight and a bunch on Wednesday night. So that's the objectives we're going to try to accomplish. First, let's go to um, Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20. Probably many of you are familiar with it, the Great Commission. I will read them to you from the screen. Then Jesus came to them and asked, all authority, or and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the context of the scripture is Jesus, raised up as a child, gets baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, he goes out into the wilderness, is tested, comes back, is ministered to by the angels. For three years he does his ministry. He's been beaten, he's been crucified, he's been put in the tomb, in the tomb, in the tomb. He's been risen from the tomb, from death to life. He's wandered around with the disciples again after the resurrection. He's about to ascend to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father till he comes back in his glory to claim his church. And he's giving instructions to his disciples before he goes. And he, he touches on some things that I think are important for us. One is all authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And now he's commissioning them to go. And they're going not in their own authority, but they're going in his authority. He has all authority in the heavens, all authority on the earth. Given to him, he's giving it to them, read us, by way of commissioning. He says, go. In order for them to accomplish the mission that he's sending them on, they can't stay and wait for the, the, the mission to come and find them, he's telling them to go. For what purpose are they being told to go? To make disciples. And then, just, I think, to comfort them, because if you're like me, it seems like a really tall order, he tells them, I'll be with you always. So flip now to Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18, and we'll read another account from Mark's gospel. It says, he, Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. There's more. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and, they will, and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and the sick people will get well. So he's saying, Mark is recounting that same situation with Jesus. And he's, he's telling the kind of things that Jesus has commissioned his disciples to go out and do. Highlights again, he says, go. He talks about preaching the gospel. The, the Greek word that is translated preach can also be translated proclaim. So it's making a proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ out to all the nations. He says, signs will accompany. So as we consider discipleship and the commission that God's given us, we should expect that signs will follow. Signs that look like if for some reason you drink deadly poison, it won't harm you. Signs that look like when Bree comes up with a gallstone and we lay our hands on her and we speak in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ that those gallstones are going to go. And if, if sometimes we don't see the signs... It's not a, a, an issue of God's will because he's given us his will. To be quite honest with you, I'm not altogether sure what that issue is, but it's a, incumbent upon us to continue to press and to press and to press until we see the fullness of everything that God said 
was to be for his people in this place on earth as it is in heaven. Another key word that, that Mark's gospel talks about is believing. It's important that we believe. If, if we come, gosh, you can see all through the New Testament, words of you're healed by your faith, if you believe. Um, James talks about asking for wisdom, and, and, and God's abundant in his ability and willingness to give wisdom, but you have to believe. You have to believe that he is God. So believing is a key to this whole process of discipleship. Some people would say from a wrong spirit that God is sovereign, right? I'm not real interested in laying my hands on a leper or going to the hospital and praying for somebody and not seeing them get well because that makes me not feel so good. And, and they, they would take this position that says God is sovereign, God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-everything. So in, in the absence of my obedience to this commission, God could cause all these things to be done anyway. But you have to understand that God's created an order. He created an order of the world. He created the universe. He created the earth. He created Adam. From Adam, he created Eve, and he gave them a commission. And that commission was that they would go and take dominion over this planet, that they would be fruitful and that they would multiply. So there was an authority. Just like Jesus gave authority to his disciples just prior to ascending to the Father, God gave a commission to mankind to rule over, have dominion over this planet. But there's always been an order. And man fell from this order with sin, which took that authority for this planet out of their hands and gave it to the one that deceived them into the place of sin. So then the dominion of this planet became Satan. And he was the ruler of the planet Earth until God's time to send Jesus, who then lived a perfect life, was the perfect priest, sacrificed himself as the perfect sacrifice. And only by doing that was he able to get that authority back. If you remember from one of the gospel accounts of Jesus as he, he comes out of the wilderness and he's being tempted by the devil and the devil takes him to all these different places and challenges him with all these different things. One of them was, um, I believe, all the kingdoms of the earth. They're all mine. I can give them to who I please. And then Jesus rebukes him back with scripture. They separate and then the, the, the story continues. But Satan owned dominion for earth. Jesus got it back. He gave it to man the way God originally intended it. Now we have the keys. But God's purpose and his process, his government, his economy, the way that this whole thing is to happen never changed. It's still our responsibility. It's still our calling to have dominion over the planet. So when we don't walk that way, we cannot say, well, God could have did it. Because we're playing God's game. God does not play our game. Okay? All right. Hey, I'm down to six pages from 11. I think I'm getting more confident about this. So we start down this path of discipleship. And you will find, as I teach you to the very best of my abilities, to the best that I have revelation from the Lord, I will always teach you to the extreme, not to the narrow. When we talk about salvation, you'll hear people that will tell you, and, I, and I'm not saying I absolutely have all things. I certainly don't have everything figured out. But I won't, I won't teach you that you're saved because you believe Jesus is God. I'll tell you that you're saved because 
you confessed him as Lord. And I'll explain to you what the lordship of Jesus means because I don't want, if there's, you know, different perceptions and one is here and one is here and one is here, and if this one is truth and I taught you here, then you got a lot of room of grace. When you get to heaven, you found out, well, I, you know, I did have to do some things that Pat told me I did, but I'm here. But if truth is here and we teach at this level, because nobody has perfect understanding, I just don't want that to be the case. So when I, when I speak of these things, I'm going to always speak to the extreme. And if you, if you want to challenge me, I'm, I'm happy to be iron getting sharpened by iron. But I want to make sure you understand that as we call you to this place of discipleship, that there's a cost to discipleship. It's not a potluck. It's a very costly thing. Um, it requires sacrifice. Just like giving an offering requires sacrifice to the Lord, being a disciple requires sacrifice. So if we look in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, you read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So Jesus is explaining to us about being a disciple, about the cost associated with being a disciple. He says if you want to keep your life, this is before you know Jesus, that's your life. It's yours. You can do with it what you want. There's consequences, but it's yours. Exercise it however you please. But if you decide to make the trade, this life for that life then it's not yours anymore. You have to lose your life. And there are things that God expects from us, that he commands us to do, that as we go through this process of being disciples, that we change and transform, and by his grace we're actually able to do. But it has to be our heart's position to want to be like Jesus. So he's showing us things here like you have to lose your life if you want to keep it. Because true life isn't this life, right? If you're born again, your citizenship is already in heaven. You're uh, an alien in this, in this land now. Let's see the next scripture. Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a pretty tall order. And God's not asking us here to hate our mother or hate our dad. He tells us in Scripture that we're to honor our parents and we're to love our brothers as ourselves. Certainly, our immediate family, every bit of love that we possibly can. But what he wants us to understand is if we're truly going to be disciples, there can be nothing that's placed above him. If there's a, if there's a decision that you have to make between your wife and God, you have to pick God. If it's your money and God, you have to pick God. If it's your comfort and God, you have to pick God. Now, does that mean that you, you always will? Does it mean that, that it's easy to do? No, it's not easy to do. It, it means that sometimes you might not do that. But, it, but you have to know, if you're going to be a disciple, you have to believe in your heart that you'd make that choice so that God can then do the process inside of you that will allow you to actually receive his grace when it's time to come. And maybe you'll never be asked some of those questions. Maybe you'll never be asked to part with your money in a way that's uncomfortable to you or your comfort in a way that's uncomfortable to you. But you have to be prepared to know that if you're asked, you have to do that. So when you count the cost of being a disciple before you would commit yourself to this path of discipleship, and I should tell you now that I don't, I don't know that I would personally believe that there's a difference between 
a born-again person and a disciple, a saved person and a disciple, somebody going to heaven and a disciple. I don't think that you can be born again and not a disciple. I think they're, they're the same. So if, if somebody says, well, you know, I will pray this prayer and I will choose Jesus to be God, and I don't know how you get there, but I'm not going to be a disciple. I don't want to lose my life. I'll have both lives. The reality is you're not a disciple and you're not saved because you haven't committed your heart to the Lord. So the cost is everything if God asks for it. But anytime the sacrifice is great, the reward is always huge. So if God is asking for everything, there's never a time... Now, we might not always agree with this in our flesh, but there's never a time that God would ask you to sacrifice something on his behalf that he wouldn't return you something much, much, much better. So if the, if the sacrifice is great, the reward is going to be even greater. And some of those things that will be a reward are the privilege of working side by side with God, co-laboring with God in this mission that we have together. And if you've never had the opportunity to see God heal a sick person or pray with somebody or somebody who's lost, they're just totally lost in their life and they don't have any hope, and you introduce Jesus Christ into their, into their consciousness and you see hope well up inside of them, you'll understand the privilege of co-laboring with God. It's, it's an absolute privilege and it's so joyful to see his hand move. Um, We've been blessed to see so many miracles, and every single time I never know how to react. I'm like, I want to jump up and down, but then it would be like I didn't expect it, and I should really expect it, but I don't want to not be excited because I'm going to blow up every time God does a miracle. And if you press into the Lord and he starts to use you in those ways, there's just nothing that could replace that. So one of the rewards is you get the privilege of working with God. The second is you get the the opportunity to have and to fulfill real purpose in your life. There's things that we strive for. You've heard it said a million times. Every preacher and his brother talks about it ain't stuff that's what you're living for. It's not the biggest house and the next biggest house and the better car and the, and the fancier car and the more expensive car and the better clothes and the this and this and this because every person that ever gets those things is never fulfilled in them because there's always somebody with a bigger house, somebody with a bigger car, somebody with more money, more this, more that, better looking, taller, they have hair. I mean, there's just a million things that, that you could want that are not going to satisfy you. But true purpose is what God destined from the foundations of time for you. He created these works for you to do. And when you do those works, you find the satisfaction that is beyond anything that, that, that the world has to offer you. So that's another thing that you get as a reward is you get to have real purpose and you actually get to fulfill that purpose. <laughs> you get the opportunity someday to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, that sounds pretty cool in and of itself, but we have no concept of God's glory. We have no concept of what it's like to be in the presence of perfect holiness. So someday, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you'll stand, this makes me cry, you'll stand in the presence of perfect holiness. You'll stand in the presence of absolute glory, such a weight that if his glory were to come now, we'd all die because we're, we're in these bodies that are imperfect. But then you'll have the perfect body that Jesus has and you'll get to hear the words from the one who created everything, the one who has all knowledge, all everything, to look you in your eye and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Selah. <laughs> 
So I wanted to talk just a minute about the word disciple. Disciple is not a Christian word. It's not a church word. It's a dictionary word. You can be a disciple of a chef. You can be a, a disciple of an of a architect. What was his name? Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, he's got disciples all over the place. Guys that, you know, learn from him and, and follow his patterns of architecture. Um, you could be, from a religious perspective, you could be a disciple of Muhammad. You could be a disciple of Buddha. You could be a disciple of lots and lots of things. But Christian discipleship, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you would have certain characteristics. One of those characteristics would be that you believe in his doctrine. So if Jesus Christ said it, you believe it because that's what a disciple does. If Jesus Christ um, said not, then you would not. You would trust and believe in his doctrine. The second thing that you characteristic that you would have as a disciple of Christ is that you would rest on his sacrifice. So you would have a peace inside of you once you start to understand sin and the wages of sin and the cost of sin. You would understand as a disciple of Christ that you can have rest. You can have peace in your soul because you know that his sacrifice was the absolute 100% full atonement for your sin. You would be imbibed, you would imbibe in his spirit. I wish there was a better word than imbibe. The dictionary that I use used the word imbibe. So I tried to find other words, but imbibe seemed like the good word. It's basically, imbibe is a word that you usually hear somebody drinks too much. They're, you know, they imbibed in too much beer. Well, this is imbibing in his spirit. It would be full of his spirit, completely full of his spirit. And then the fourth would be you would imitate his example. Ultimately, if Jesus Christ did it, you would do it. If Jesus Christ wouldn't do it, you wouldn't do it. You would imitate the examples that you would see in Scripture of his life. The word disciple, it's interesting if you, if you get your Bible software out and you search on disciple, you'll find that, I don't know, hundreds of times that word occurs in the New Testament in the Gospels and the book of Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Five books in a row, disciple is in there every place. As soon as you hit Romans all the way to Revelation, it doesn't show up one time. Zero times in Romans through Revelation. The word that you do find in Romans through, through Revelation is the word discipline. So disciple in the Gospels and Acts, discipline every place else in the New Testament. And the definition of discipline is the controlled behavior resulting from such training. So it's interesting that the way the New Testament is laid out, you see disciple, 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 discipline, 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 discipline. And it's a process, one leading to the other. So the fruit of the process of discipleship is discipline in life that reflects the teaching of Christ, imitating his example. So as a disciple, you develop discipline. And that pattern of your life that would mirror Jesus Christ becomes more and more evident. If you, I don't know how you'd measure it, if five hours a day you, you look like Jesus and five hours a day you didn't, pretty soon six hours a day you look like Jesus and four hours a day you didn't. And your, your life would become this thing that reflects Jesus Christ. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And we'll talk about a little bit about being like Jesus. For those... God foreknew, he also predestined and conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
emphasis added, sisters in the Lord. So Romans 8 talks about conforming into the likeness of what? Jesus Christ. Part of the process of being a disciple is that you would be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Let's look at another one. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, you see this thing called transformation. In, transformed into what? Into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So this process of discipleship should cause us to change. And you should constantly be testing yourself. You should be looking in that mirror, that mirror that would reflect this glory, and you should say, am I being transformed? Because if you're not, if that process has stopped, or heaven forbid never started, that should be a big red flag in your life. We should be constantly, constantly, constantly praying to be changed into the likeness of Christ, to be transformed into his image. The process by which that transformation happens is called discipleship. Now, We'll have a discipleship program here. You're being discipled right now. You'll be discipled on Wednesday night. You'll disciple each other in small groups. You get discipled in a lot of different ways. You get discipled when you read the Bible. God's Word is a discipling document for you. When you're born again, you receive His Spirit. You're discipled by His Spirit as He leads you and He guides you and He, he hedges you in from things that you shouldn't do and directs you towards things that you should. So there's a, there's a lot that impacts this process of discipleship, but a big piece of it is each other. It's, it's the process of iron sharpening iron, people with people. I thought to myself, well, this discipleship is really important. So maybe that's why Jesus came. And I, I started to ponder, what, were the, what would be like the, the main reasons that Jesus came to earth? And the thought that I had was, first was to save the world. And I'm not even sure in any order. Probably first. Save the world, destroy the works of the devil, and make disciples. Because the make the disciples part is what causes the ball to continue to roll. It's what causes the, the process to go on and on and on. But if, if, well, let me back up a minute. Let me ask us a question. So I've, I've gone through all this scriptures and, and my very best Pat Brady preaching about why discipleship is important. Can we stop at this point and agree that God's call on our lives is to be and make disciples? Yes? Okay, Good. Because you'd mess up the whole rest of my message if you said no. <laughs> We'd have to start again, and then you'd be late, and kids would be tired. That, that, your agreement to that question then begs the question of how. If God's calling us to be disciples, and we're to also make disciples, how do we do that? So what, what's the best way for us to learn? Should we maybe like call up the Baptist church or the Methodist church or the super-duper got 10,000 members church and say, hey, we just figured out we're supposed to be disciples. Tell us what to do. That would be a way, and it might not be a bad way. We could read a book, right? There's probably lots of books that people have written about discipleship, but there's a best way that we would be discipled. That is yes and yes. The answers that you said were to look at Jesus Christ as an example and to see what the Bible says to us about being disciples. So I did that. I said, well, what did it look like for Jesus? What was his pattern of ministry? And it kind of fell into four things. The first was that he recruited people. And I try to find a better word than recruit, but recruit's an okay word. So maybe there's a nicer, softer word that's not recruit. But Jesus recruited people. And then he trained them and he discipled them. Step two. Then, once they'd been trained and discipled a while, he sent them out. And he said, now go do some of this stuff. And then fourth, 
he did was he commissioned them and he sent them out to go do as he had done. So let's look at that, each one of those steps a little bit. And this is where this really got fun for me. The first one is this recruiting process. How did Jesus recruit? First, he went where people are. Jesus didn't sit by the shore of the Jordan and hope that the Father would send him people that he could then disciple. He went. He walked by the Sea of Galilee. He tripped over these mugs. Um, I shouldn't call them mugs. Dave, I learned that from you, wherever you are, Dave Levins. Um, Peter and Andrew. He runs across Peter and Andrew. This is one I want to see replayed when I get to heaven because he said, follow me. And they said, great. They're fishermen. They're part of a business. They don't likely maybe know this guy from Adam. He probably, they did know him. Maybe he saw him when he got baptized. I don't remember. But Jesus walked up. He said, follow me. He went to where they were. However Jesus did that, they followed him. He did that with a bunch of other people. How else did he recruit people? He healed them, right? If you're the guy that was brought by his pals on a stretcher to hear Jesus talk, and that place is so packed, you can't even, no one even make a hole so you can get into the door, and your buddies climbed up on the roof and made a space and lowered you down, and Jesus touched you and you're healed, you're likely to be a disciple. You're going to follow Jesus. So he healed people. What else did he do? He loved and he cared for people. Think about Mary Magdalene, seven demons. Think about the guy that uh, Pastor Jim calls naked cat-eating guy, the garrison demoniac, right? There's a messed up guy. And he, he immediately wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, no, you stay here. But there's an example of Jesus' ministry and then somebody that wants to follow him. So he made disciples literally... Well, wait a minute, one more I want to bring up. The woman caught in the act of adultery. How about her? Right? She was clearly not a disciple of Jesus because she was caught in the act of adultery. She was, she was dragged to him, and in compassion, he figured out a way for her not to be stoned to death when the law said that she should. He humbled every one of those people that wanted to throw the rocks at her, and he just looked at her and said, I don't condemn you either. Don't do that anymore. I'm betting you that she became a disciple of Jesus Christ. So how did he gather people. He was Jesus. He acted like Jesus. And the thing that's really cool to me about this part is it just sounds like church on the street. He went out where they were. He acted like Jesus. That's what we can do. We have the Holy Spirit. We have his love in our hearts. We go out on the street. We be incarnate, the incarnate love of Christ in front of people. And guess what they'll do? They'll follow. They'll come. So next process was training and discipling. And this one was fun too. If you look at how did Jesus do it, well, he did these big stadium events, like a crusade, like uh, Reinhard Bonnke in Africa, only this is Jesus Christ in Palestine, and he would speak to literally thousands of people at a time. They, they record 4,000 once that was fed and 5,000 another time, but that's just the men. So if you added women and children, some of the scholars think there could have been as many as fifteen or 20,000 people there. So he did stadium things. And then he did church. He would go from town to town, city to city, and he would visit the synagogue. The synagogue is a place where, where the people would meet on the Sabbath, and they'd open up the scrolls, and they'd read the scrolls, and Jesus would teach them in what we would call kind of a church setting. He also employed this process called small groups. He would get these 12 together that were like his closer disciples, and, and he would teach them, and they would break bread, and they would share time together. And then he would do intimate, personal maybe one-on-one for sure, one-on-three, you see numerous instances in the Bible where 
Jesus goes off, but he doesn't have the multitude. He doesn't have the 12. He's got Peter, James, and John. And he's sowed into them more personally, which is so much in line with the model that the Lord gave Kirk for our discipleship ministry. So Jesus did those kind of things. He also taught by example, right? As he's walking down the road and the blind guy's screaming and yelling and everybody's telling the guy to be quiet or the children are hollering and they all want to come by Jesus and they push him away or the, all the different examples of the attitude that the disciples had that was contrary to the attitude that Jesus had, he taught them. He said, no, let the children come to me. He, he healed the guy that was obnoxious and gave him his sight. So he taught them by example. Then he gave them, exercises, gave them opportunities to exercise what they've learned. He sent them out. First the 12. He commissioned them, gave them authority to do the things that they would have to do. He told them what to do. And then they went out and did it. Later you see where he sent out the 70, two by two. Commissioned them to go, told them what to do. They went out and did it, came back and said, how wonderful. He's like, God, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So his pattern... Recruit, disciple, give them the opportunity to practice. And then finally, like we talked about earlier with the Great Commission, he ultimately commissioned them and he sent them out. The difference was this time they were to go and replicate themselves. And I thought about this. I'm like, okay, I know that's true because it's in the Word, but I want to find a, a, a pattern where I've seen it happen. And I thought about our life, me and Teresa. It's so cool. We got recruited. This church, well, this church, the one that we let use on Sundays, built a uh, skate park. And they recruited our family through this thing, the skate park, that caused us to come. And then they started to disciple us. They discipled us at church services. They discipled us in small group meetings. They discipled us in training classes. We went to the first base class and the second and the third and the fourth base class. We were discipled by following them and seeing how they do things in disciple, or in uh, servant evangelism. And then time came for us to exercise. So instead of participating in a small group, they asked us to lead a small group. They taught us about how to pray with people. Then they asked us to develop a ministry to pray with people. And they gave us more and more opportunities to exercise the things that we learned when we didn't even realize we were being discipled through that process. And then ultimately, here we are today where we've been commissioned and we're being sent out. So it, it mirrors exactly the process that Jesus demonstrated in his ministry. <laughs> My note says, discipleship is a reproductive process. I remember Mike Mrazek saying, you can't reproduce what you aren't. So if you go back to the definition of a Christian disciple, you can't produce people that believe his doctrine if you don't believe his doctrine. You can't produce people that rest in his sacrifice if you aren't discipled to the place where you rest in his sacrifice, where you're filled with his spirit and you imitate the example that you've seen in him. So our mission, our co-mission with God, see he created the order. He put us in place to fulfill it, but he will always provide us what we need to get it done. Be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Go into the world. Preach the good news. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded in his name, in the authority associated with his name. Cast out demons, speak in new tongues, and heal the sick. Now, 
I talked to Kirk earlier this week. I'm like, Kirk, man, I'm going to be challenging people with all these really hard things. You know, just go raise some dead people and find some demons and cast them out. And, and I'm afraid that I'm not going to package this in a, in a way that is, it might be like they feel like we're trying to boil the ocean or eat a whole elephant at one sitting. It's not that at all. It's, it's a process that we go through. And I was asking the Lord about, about that. It's like, God, does everybody required to cast out a demon? Is everybody required to raise the dead? Is everyone required to do these things you sent us to do? And individually, I don't know. My guess is if God crossed your path with a leper and it was your job in his world to heal him, you'd feel the grace and he'd give you what you needed to do it. But I know this, that collectively, remember, each and every one of us is not a body. Each and every one of us is a part to a body. And if we all will embrace discipleship, if we'll all understand our role, then collectively the body will do these things. The part of the body will raise dead people. There's part of the body today. The body that you belong to is raising dead people. There's a part of the body that's cleansing lepers. There's a part of the body that are healing sick people, that are proclaiming the gospel in every corner of the earth. So at least collectively, if we'll all embrace this process, this thing that God has asked us to do, then we know that his purposes will be met. The last thing that I wanted to do is, I, I've not been a Christian for 30 years. Most of you know that. Our, my Christian life has been fast, but it, I think almost eight years maybe. Almost eight years. And I have really, really wrestled with a lot from the, the day I confessed Christ, that honestly I'm not sure I even knew what I was doing, to the day where I stand here before you proclaiming the gospel. And I thought, God, how can I help with this process? And, and I had some thoughts. The first is... Romans 12 tells us that we need to be transformed, that we shouldn't be conformed to the ways of the world, but transformed. How do we get transformed? We renew, we be renewed in our minds. And that's so that we can prove God's will, that which is good and perfect. So you have to understand that you need a renewed mind. You have to pray for a renewed mind. You have to ask God to show you where your mind is not renewed because those places where you're not, your mind has not been yet renewed are strongholds. And there are even things of God that seem, are contrary to things that seem right. You know, the Bible will teach you something and you'll say, but that's not love. Well, no, if it's God, it is love. But there's a stronghold in your mind there that's resisting that. So you have to accept the fact that God knows and that you have been indoctrinated into a world that is thinking is contrary to the kingdom of God. So if you, can make your, if you can make that leap mentally, you will make that leap in your heart. It'll, it'll make it easier in your heart. Uh, things won't make sense. Take wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's one of the most quoted uh, couple of verses in the Bible, but it's really truth. It's important. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So God's telling us in this verse to trust him with all your heart. Things are not going to make sense. But what you do is you trust God with all your heart. You don't, when there's a conflict where kingdom appears this, but real appears this, you trust God. You acknowledge him in all your ways. And what you'll find is as you do that, your, your path will be straight. 
Sometimes I felt like the, the bowling ball in the little kid's bowling alley with the rubber things in the thing. And, and now all I want to do is go right down the middle. But down the middle doesn't always make any sense to me. So I'm like, nah, something's messed up in the book. And bam, you bounce off the side and God kind of helps you and transform your mind. And you get up back in the middle again. And this whole process of beating myself against both sides trying to find the middle. If you just trust that he's wise, it'll help. Uh, commit to yourself these three things as truth. Just believe them. Just absolutely believe them. If you have an, an event in your life that's contrary to one of these three things, you have to believe these. Okay? I mean, people have tragedies in their lives. People have lost children, um, parents. Uh, people have gotten crippled. All these things. And they want to blame God. But God is good. He's always good. He's never not good. There's no situation in life, there's no situation in history, there's no situation ever where God is not good. Whether you can understand it, whether you even in your heart can believe it because of circumstances, you have to know God is good. He's always good. Second thing is that his intentions for you are good. He never has a bad intention for you. Always he has good intentions for you. So if you can't see light at the end of your tunnel, it's not that God doesn't have a good intention for you. If you can't understand a torment, if you can't understand a situation, you have to understand that anything that you don't think is good, if God has something to do with it, his intention is always good. And then the last thing is he loves you absolutely unconditionally. You have to understand that his love is a, is a different love than the love you learned in the world, in this indoctrination that your mind needs to be renewed out of. There's aspects of godly love in the world. There's good things about how people love each other in the world that reflect portions of godly love. But godly love is absolutely perfect. It's absolutely unconditional, and it never leaves. God himself is love. In 1 John, the scripture says that he's love, and it goes on to say that all love comes from him. So any love that I have for my wife, any love that I have for you guys, is all a gift that God's given to me to, to share. So God loves you unconditionally. I wanted to take a couple of minutes and talk about church in the home. Let me just tell you this. We are, we've always described ourselves as a small group church that meets on the weekends, right? Today, this, right now, Saturdays, Sundays, Sundays. We're a small group church. We believe in home church. We believe in, believe in fellowshipping in more intimate ways. But we also believe, because we see it in Jesus' pattern, that these kind of meetings are appropriate too. The joke is that we're really a children's church that has an adult service. It's kind of how we're evolving to be as a children's church that has an adult service. But the, the, the general concept is this. We're going to start with three different types of meetings. Once a month, and let me back up even a little more, we're going to have foundational doctrine as the place where we start. Christians need to understand the foundations of your faith because you're going to be challenged in your faith. You're going to be challenged in your faith even not by other people, just by yourself sometimes, by your own beliefs. So... Kirk is going to, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, determine where we start. You're going to help him with that. As a matter of fact, do we have the forms? Oh. Okay, so we might not review the form tonight. Oh, good. The forms get passed on Wednesday. I haven't messed up yet. Um, so we'll have these large meetings. And, and it literally, ideally, we would expect, expect is a bad word, we would pray that every person would embrace discipleship. 
and would attend the small, be part of the small groups. So once a month we'll have a small group meeting. Maybe someday it'll be twice, once every other month. Probably won't ever be more than once a month. Where we'll really get some full-on teaching about baptism or healing or love or whatever the thing that the Holy Spirit's laid on Kirk's heart for us as a body to be sowed into. And then during the course of the month, we'll have small groups. So there'll be, Teresa said, four or five people. So you guys will pick small groups. That'll be your intimate little group fellowship that you're going to meet with at least twice a month on a weekly basis. You'll get to pick, you know, you would say we're a small group. We, we got our teaching. We know what we're to study. We're going to go get busy. We're going to do that. Then we're going to come together and iron is going to sharpen iron and we're going to talk and we're going to pray together. Maybe we'll break some bread together. And I'll say, well, Kirk, probably Teresa will say, Brenda, should we come to your house or do you want to come to ours? And we'll decide. And then the next time they'll say, well, you came to our house last time. Why don't we go to yours? And so, so it, it doesn't have the rigidity of every week I have to host, every week I got to have you come to my house, every week somebody has to prepare the food. It'll be much more flexible. So at least two weeks out of the month, you'll meet in that small group setting, just four or five people. You'll become intimate with each other. You'll be very safe in that place. Then once a month, you'll meet with the, what Teresa called the medium-sized group, which would be like eight to ten people. And that would be two of those small groups plugged together. And for at least as far out as we can see right now, it's not, you know, reach into the hat, oh, you know, this group is meeting with this group this week, but it's a different one the next month. It'll be the same. So it'll be more kind of like the group that you, you guys are familiar with at our house, only divided by four kind of thing. But anyway, you'll, you'll get to know another set of people that have been chewing on and sharpening each other the same biblical principles. So now you have a different perspective that you can chew on. You'll make new relationships. You'll have new people that you can pray with, and you'll start to develop that same level of intimacy with them. So that's just, in a nutshell, the process. You hear about it on Wednesday. Please come. Kirk, is there anything that I missed that you'd add? No? Okay. Um, We're running kind of late. I want to tell you a quick story. This is... This is... This preaching part has just really been hard for me. It's funny. I've talked in front of large groups in my business life for 20 years, and God has really had to break me down and to a place. I'm sure I'm not all the way there yet, but break me down to a place where he can have me not be me doing this, and he can get in there a little bit and kind of let his spirit have a little control here. So this hasn't been easy for me. As I go through the process, I'm, I spend days trying to get this messages prepared. And, and this week I, I tripped over some scriptures in Luke chapter 14 that I could not reconcile. I had this belief in my heart that had to be right for everything I was going to tell you to be, for me to feel good to say it. So I get these things in Luke chapter 14 and they, my understanding of those scriptures caused me not to be able to reconcile what needed to be reconciled so that I could deliver this message. So I'm thinking, who do I talk to? Somebody's going to have to disciple me here. And I called Pastor Jim, but his phone went straight to voicemail, and I thought, hey, Pastor Josh, that guy went to Bible college. I mean, he probably knows everything there is to know about the Bible. So I call Pastor Josh, and I say, Pastor Josh, I'm wrestling with these scriptures, and it's really important that I understand them. What do they mean? And he starts over the phone. I can see him scratching his head. And then he says, well, I have a commentary. Let me open my commentary. He looks at the commentary. And I'm saying, 
you know, Pastor Josh, I don't think you went to the best Bible college ever. <laughs> and he offered me his commentary. I said, I don't want your commentary. <laughs> he didn't answer my question. I was scheduled this morning to go to Freedom Center North, had a staff meeting, and they asked me to come and help them with some stuff. So I'm getting ready to go to Freedom Center North. I'm not reconciled about Luke chapter 14. I'm conflicted about how in the world I'm going to teach this message if I'm not reconciled about Luke chapter 14. And I look up to heaven and I say, God, I am being obedient to your word because I am considering Skip and his people more highly than myself because I don't want to go there. I want to stay home and understand this scripture. I get in the car. I start driving. I have two radio stations. I love to listen to teaching that I try to listen to. I hit the first one and it's like... I say, well, okay, we won't listen to that one. I hit the second one and it's the most awesome pastor. And guess what he's preaching on? Discipleship. And it's beautiful. It's just great. I'm hearing this guy teach, and it's really good stuff. It's encouraging me. He gets towards the end of his sermon. He said, now, there's a couple of scriptures that I really feel strongly that you have to understand for you to get this message. And guess what they were? My verses in Luke chapter 14. And he taught them in such a way that was so amazing that I understood. My, my understanding was totally messed up. But God showed me that if you'll be obedient to my word, if you'll consider Skip's needs above your needs, and if you'll just go do those things, I'll provide for your needs. And I was just singing in the car. I was so happy. So that's my cool God story tonight. I pray that he works that way in all your lives. I know he does. And we're running late, so let me just pray real quick. Father, thank you so much for this day. I pray, God, I pray that the soil of our hearts is prepared Lord, that we would know that we are called to be disciples, that being disciples and discipling is not an optional thing. It's not something where we could check yes or no and pick something different from the menu. We are called to be disciples, Lord. I pray that we would recognize that and that we would sacrifice, that we would know that our lives are not our own because we sacrifice for those that don't know you yet, Lord. We sacrifice for our Lord Jesus so that when we're presented to him, we will be a bride without spot and without wrinkle. So, Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your anointing. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Father's heart. Lord, I pray blessings over this entire congregation. Lord, I pray that they'll be bold as they go out, that they will be Jesus on the street, Father, that people will see your loving heart. They'll see your miraculous power, God. They'll know you from us. Thank you, God. I pray you bless the people at the other end of the church. They're so wonderful. They're so wonderful, God. Again, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.